If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. There's been some encouraging news this week uh, regarding some of the various uh, vaccine candidates uh, for COVID-19. And so, there, in fact, there's a you know, number of, uh, of vaccines being researched uh, right around the world. And some are now getting into phase one and phase two trials. Mentioned before the break, some encouraging results published this week uh, and some monkeys being used for vaccine research. And we have seen some, some humans involved in, in some initial you know, phase one trials. The big part about getting vaccines over the finish line is what's referred to as phase three, where you're um, finding a lot of potential candidates uh, to inject with the vaccine and also some that you're giving a placebo. And then you just kind of let them go back to their lives, back into society, and you spend months or years observing and, and seeing the impact of the vaccine and how effective it is. Because you can't just deliberately expose somebody to the virus to see if the vaccine works. Or can you? It's the idea of human challenge trials. Uh, those who are willing to step up and, and be volunteers for exactly that kind of an approach uh, to give a group of individuals a potential vaccine that's already gone through phase one and phase three, uh, two trials to give them that vaccine and then to expose them to the virus because you'll get a pretty clear answer pretty quickly as to whether it helps ward off infection. But obviously, there's some ethical questions around that approach, the idea of deliberately exposing somebody to a virus that could potentially cause some serious health problems, maybe even potentially death. How do we address that? Well, there's an interesting new study published this week looking at uh, some of those very questions. Joining us on the line, one of the authors uh, of that study, uh, one of the world's leading uh, medical ethicists, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, uh, director of the Division of Medical Ethics at uh, NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Professor Kaplan, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so the concept of the human challenge trials is, I suppose, simple enough, as I explained, right? That it would involve deliberately exposing people to a virus to see if, if the vaccine works. That's right. There is some history of this, not often done, but it has been done way, way back in the U.S. when Walter Reed and his fellow soldiers were trying to dig the uh, Panama Canal and fighting the war in Cuba. They deliberately did infect each other with mosquitoes carrying yellow fever looking for a cure. Some died. And we've tried it with malaria vaccine, uh, cholera vaccine. And sometimes we use challenge studies to test, say, pollutants, uh, maybe in gasoline or in air pollution, household products, where you just expose a subject to them. They're not going to benefit. There's no medicine being pursued. You're just trying to figure out how much is a safe level. So they're not unprecedented. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the, the title of the study kind of hits at it. It says extraordinary diseases require extraordinary solutions. That, that We've got a real serious health crisis on our hands, and we need to at least be willing to, to think outside the box, as it were. Yeah. Remember, as you said, Rob, the 
the standard way to develop a vaccine, the fastest vaccine I know of ever developed prior to this plague was mumps. It went from animal studies to an approval from the FDA and European authorities and Canadian authorities in four and a half years. And then it took them another year at least to manufacture it and distribute it. That's what mm-hmm. is the fastest one ever done. Part of the problem is if you're waiting to get an answer from these big clinical trials, they're slow. Natural infection is slow. If you're really talking a couple of years for that, I don't really care when people talk about getting a vaccine by the fall or in 12 months. I think that's ridiculously never going to happen. But if you did do the challenge study, you could shorten the study time down to a couple of months as opposed to a couple of years. So how do we how do we handle then these the ethical issues that arise and and what we're potentially doing to to those who volunteer for this? Yeah, well, it's a close call, tough call. You're basically looking at that principle: do no harm, and you're saying I'm still going to infect you with a dangerous virus for which I don't have a rescue. Right? If you get right. sick, I can't guarantee I can save you. So you have to first of all get good consent. The people have to understand that they're doing it altruistically to help there's no benefit for them you're going to give them the test vaccine and then the disease and then watch and they have to be competent you can't have anybody who's coerced or manipulated or tricked i'm not sure i would pay them more than minimally just so there's nobody in there for the money you don't want that either you want them to understand you bring them into a place near a hospital so if they do get sick you can at least get them to the icu you're probably also going to recruit young people because the death rate there is lower, very low, actually. And the hospitalization rate's low. In fact, just so we have a risk thing in our heads, the chance of dying from this if you're 20 to 30 is less than it would be if you donated a liver, a lobe of liver or a kidney. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that, yeah, that puts it in some perspective. Uh, At the same time, too, though, I guess if we're we're studying this vaccine... um, you know, is, is it more likely to cause issues for someone who's outside of that group? I guess we're only testing, say, 18 to 30-year-olds, um, and maybe it, it tells us something about the effectiveness of the vaccine, but does it tell us everything we need to know about the vaccine? No, it doesn't. And we know, for example, that the elderly, with every vaccine, their immune systems begin to weaken, many of them with age. So you have to give bigger doses, say, if the flu shot, if you're looking to protect them and uh newborns the only immunity they have is what they inherit from their moms their immune systems kind of don't turn on for six months or a year so even if you had a vaccine that worked in that 20 to 30 year old group or 18 to 35 year old group it doesn't mean it would work with the very old or in the newborns but the sensible thing to do, again, I think, is to start with that group, see if you've got something that seems to work, and then expand out from there. Well, that's the thing. I guess if you have a vaccine that's gone through phase one and phase two trials, you've got some indication that it, it might or probably would offer some support, so that minimizes mm-hmm. the risk. But do you also need to have a control group? Are we talking about volunteers who would be exposed to the virus but have just been given kind of a, a placebo vaccine? Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's a fight about that. (laughs) Some people think you have to do it rigorously, and so you're going to give people a phony shot. I I don't even see the point. You could study a group of 500 comparable young people and just see what happened to them in terms of, you know, did they get infected or what was the death rate in that group matched 
for the uh, study group. So I'm going to say no, but I don't know. There are fanatics about the precision here who say if there's no placebo, it can't be trusted. I, I don't agree with that. Well, and I guess by that point, it's a it's a more narrow question that does this vaccine protect against the virus so it either does or it doesn't uh, right so it's not like going to be subjective you know yeah we're having a fight now uh as many listeners know about that hydrochloroquine does it do anything well the president can say for example all he wants he thinks it's great and it's good but there's going to be data and we'll know (laughs) it's it's not up for ideology so I know there's there's one group out there that's been uh, trying to recruit potential volunteers yeah. for these kinds of challenge trials. But, I mean, ultimately, who who makes that decision? Yeah. There is a website, and the group is called One Day Less, and they've had 25,000 people around the world volunteer, which is way, way more than you'd need to do these studies. But that's interesting. Again, mm-hmm. it's one thing to volunteer on a website. It's another thing to show up. So I guess that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be there. But indicative that there probably is a group of folks who would do it. Um, I think really what you need is a sponsor, and you'd have to have the NIH or a Canadian government authority or a drug company making vaccines try it. They would have to get regulatory approval to do it. And those discussions are going on. What we're talking about is not hypothetical. The NIH, the FDA, the Europeans are well aware that even waiting two, three years to get the data back on a vaccine, if you were lucky enough to get one out of the box, the first one to work, you'd have a lot of people dying and a lot of uh, flare-ups, and that's a big cost to society, even if you're putting 500 people at risk. So they're they're thinking about it. I'm not saying they're going to do it, but they're thinking. Well, it's a big question, and uh, obviously a lot of urgency to this. So we'll leave it there for now. Dr. Kaplan, appreciate the insight as always. Thanks so much for joining us here today. All the best to you. Uh, That's uh, Arthur Kaplan at uh, NYU School of Medicine in New York City, very well-known medical ethicist, co-author of uh, the study published this week. Uh, As the headline says, extraordinary diseases require extraordinary solutions. So it's not unprecedented, which I guess is a popular word these days, but, um, you know, it's unconventional. It's certainly a much quicker process uh, than, than what would typically be the case. Well, for me, I kind of like the excuse to, to get out of the house and uh, drive to, to pick up dinner, whether it be, you know, take out a fast food restaurant or uh, take out from, from uh, a local sit-down restaurant. Uh, but obviously, look, I mean, delivery apps like Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes, they were big business before this whole pandemic. And over the last couple of months, I suppose it's been uh, even better for their bottom line. Right, as, as people have limited options when it comes to going out to eat and maybe just wanting to stay home anyway and the convenience of having that food brought directly to you. So I think people see that as, as a means of staying connected maybe with their favorite restaurant. But increasingly, uh, restaurant owners want, want people to know the real impact of these uh, delivery apps and the fees that they charge. In fact, the Alberta Hospitality Association this week going so far as to call on provincial or municipal governments uh, to take steps to try to limit those fees that these apps can charge. That's a real dilemma for restaurants. I mean, you can just simply refuse to do business uh, with Uber Eats or skip the dishes, but recognizing that people are using them. And if they're not ordering from you, then they're going to order from, from your competitor. 
Uh, but joining us to talk a bit more about, you know, what the impact is and what people need to know about how this whole relationship works. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Paul Schufelt. He's a uh, chef uh, in Edmonton, also a restaurateur, runs the uh, Workshop Eatery in Edmonton. Paul, good to talk to you again. You're welcome back to the program. Oh, hang on a second here. Do we got him here? Hello. There we go. Paul, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Doing good. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. So let me ask you, first of all, by the way, since Calgary uh, restaurants has still got a few more days to wait before they can bring diners back in, what, what's it been like in Edmonton since last week? Uh, it's been, uh, I think people have been cautious about coming back. So we have uh, uh, workshop eateries, a little bit more fine dining, Woodshed Burgers is a little bit more casual. So we elected to open Woodshed Burgers to actually about 40% capacity because we felt like that's what we could manage. Uh, and it's been well received, uh, but it, people haven't been like kicking the doors down to get in. And I, I, I sense there's still that trepidation. And uh, so for us, it was a chance to sort of test the waters and see how it's going uh, and to make sure that the stops and checks that we've put in place uh, are manageable and we can keep our staff and our and our guests safe. So, so far, so good. Uh, but it hasn't been, uh, you know, gangbusters, uh, people r- rushing in to, uh, to, to sit down again. So there's yeah. still some, some, some caution out there, which is good. I think we need to be, uh, you know, be safe at this point. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, maybe it, it is for the best. Um, but, you know, at the same time, obviously, I mean, people still need to eat. And so the option of being able to get delivery or takeout from restaurants, I, I think, has been beneficial to both restaurants and, and the customer. But let's get into this whole question of, of these delivery apps. And, and what, what do people need to know about how this, this whole arrangement works? Yeah, I mean, I started the uh about, oh gosh, about a month ago, talking with some fellow businessmen on Twitter, and we started talking about the cost involved uh, from a business owner standpoint uh, to be involved with uh, third-party delivery. And I was alarmed at how little they understood about the cost. So uh, from our standpoint, we're paying anywhere from on the low end about 16% uh, all the way up to 30% or more uh, for every sale. So if you purchase $100 worth of food, anywhere from 16 to $30 of that, I would go to the, the third party, uh, not the driver, but the actual company. Uh, on top of that, some of them charge a 90, 99 cent per transaction fee. They will still charge you credit card charges. Occasionally, if they're not doing a free delivery promotion, they will charge you a delivery surcharge on top of that. So, you know, you can get up uh, easily up over 35% of your, uh, your, your sale ends up going to the third party. And in a normal circumstance, you look at and you've got a full dining room and life is good and things are busy and you happen to get, I don't know, four or five or six delivery orders in a night, it's gravy. And if you give a little bit away or if you give a lot away, it hurts a little bit, but you're probably still making some money on that deal. But when you go from doing, let's say, 90% or more in-house and 10% takeout to completely flipping that where you're doing, you know, 90% or more is, is takeout or delivery, and most of that is going to a third party, uh, it becomes very difficult to uh, to sustain yourself. Right. And so what about the idea then that, well, just don't do business with them, right? To, you know, tell Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats, to take a hike and you don't want nothing to do with them. That's a, that's a tough dilemma. And I'll tell you, so for our restaurants, we actually have an, our, an internal uh, online ordering system and we have our own staff doing the deliveries. So we have our service staff doing the delivery and the dispatching. And I'm 
glad that we're able to keep our staff employed. But that doesn't work for everybody. And the, the problem yeah. arises in that um, if you're one little guy and you've got one little shop and your advertising is maybe a couple hundred bucks a month, how do you compete with Skip the Dishes and Uber Eats and those guys who have a massive advertising budget and are going to push your product forward? And you, you're going to get in front of people that, that just they're just looking for convenience. So they go on one of those third-party delivery apps and they look for the restaurant that they want to eat or they look for what they feel like eating. Oh, I want hamburgers? Well, there's seven hamburger choices. Oh, that one sounds cool. I'm going to try it. So if you're not in the mix, you're missing out on those sales. But if you are in the mix, you're, you're taking that huge hit on the cost and then you start to have to do the math. Is it worth me having to still pay rent and still pay utilities and still pay for the paper products and the labor and the food cost uh, to get everything out? Uh, but I'm only doing two thirds of the sales, or I'm only getting two thirds of the revenue, and I'm probably getting still much less sales than I used to when I was open for uh, in-store plus takeout. So it's a tough spot. It is. Uh, what about the you know the question then of of raising prices? Well, it's really interesting. I've, I've brought this, up, or people have brought this up to me. Well, just increase your prices. Well, if you actually read the fine print on the Uber Eats and or the Skip the Dishes uh, contract actually says it, it stipulates clearly you have to charge the same price as you do in-store. Um, so if I have a $12 hamburger in-store, I can only charge $12 for takeout or delivery. Um, and I can't, I'm not supposed to increase that. Some guys do, but it's like, okay, great, I increase, increase that from $12 to $15. Well, at what point does the customer say enough's enough? Yeah. And... You know, I'd like, I'd like to see it the other way. It's like, hey, I, I appreciate it. And you know what? I'd be lying if I told you I've never sat on my couch and been too lazy to get out and, and go. <laughs> so I just click on, click on an app and do something. And I feel a ton of guilt when I do it. Um, but it's, it's, it's my choice. So why am I not the one incurring the additional cost? Um, yeah. You know, so, and, and yeah, sure, maybe you're paying a three ninety nine delivery fee, but you're not paying 30% of the, you're not paying a 30% premium to have that product delivered to your door. So maybe there's a, you know, some opportunity there for some shared cost between the consumer and the restaurateur. Um, you know, other cities have taken re really unique approaches. San Francisco has actually capped uh, third-party delivery fees to a maximum of, of 15% until uh, the pandemic is over. Uh, I know Toronto was looking at that as an option as well. Uh, there's a group of restaurants in New York that are actually suing uh, uh, Uber Eats uh, over the uh, fees they're charging and the gouging that they're doing and the fact that they're still moving their commissions up during the pandemic. So there is a pushback happening right now. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's a really tough spot to be in. And, uh, you know, as, as a restaurateur that doesn't use these things, uh, I'm still an advocate for getting rid of them because they're, I feel like they're sort of a parasite hanging on to a host that is, you know, dying by the minute right now. Yeah. And uh, they're trying to take every last penny of us on the way out the door. Well, and I mean, um, things like, I mean, food delivery has been around a lot longer than, you know, these apps have been around or longer than the Internet's been around. Um, you know, that we used to just, if we wanted to order from a restaurant, we call up that restaurant to call the delivery number, place our order, and it would come. So there, there is still that option. How, how, how challenging is it for restaurants, though, not just, I guess, to compete with these apps, but just to have something in place that makes it easy for customers to contact them directly, to have drivers ready to go, et cetera? 
it's really, I mean, for us, we've managed to find a way, and it was, it's been a process to learn how to do it. We've got two, two apps that we use that require very little cost. They're easy to manage. We can do internally. We actually have our staff that when they're not driving, they're doing preparation work in the kitchen or they're doing cleaning or they're doing things so that they're actually getting full-time shifts because it's not, you know, you don't walk in and do deliveries from 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. It, there's peak times and there's downtime. So we managed to find a way to keep them gainfully employed but also find other stuff for them to do. But it is tough, tough to manage. Um, it's also tough. I mean, the hardest part is to get the messaging out there. I mean, our app specifically is as easy to use as any of the Skip or the Uber Eats, but a lot of people don't know. So for us, it's really been a part of pushing the message out there. Like, hey, you can purchase directly from us, and it's just as easy and it's just as convenient. You, if you want contact that contactless experience, we can take payment over uh, right over the app, and you don't even have to see us. We can ring the doorbell and leave it on the doorstep. But getting that messaging out there is hard and. You know, I have a pretty good voice in the city of Edmonton. Not everybody has that luxury. So guys that are just starting out or they've got a small restaurant or maybe don't, uh, you know, have the, the name recognition, it's hard to get that word out there. Uh, and it's hard to compete with that convenience of I'm used to using Skip the Dishes. I'm used to using Uber Eats. I mean, uh, I, I would compare it almost to the cab industry. I mean, I just open Uber and I you know, press on the app and a a car comes. I don't have to look for a phone number or fight over which cab company should come first. I just press the the app and I go. So I understand the convenience and the hard battle to fight is a small independent restaurant trying to, trying to keep your head above water. That's true. But I mean, look, if there are no restaurants, then there's no escape the dishes. There's no Uber Eats, right? So, I mean, you would think that they would have a vested interest in, in these, these restaurants surviving and thriving, but I I don't know. They they don't seem to realize that maybe. What, What do you think? I just, I, I don't feel like they care. And, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, Skip specifically, when they, you know, a- approached us at first a couple of years ago, it was, you know, we're here to help the little guy and to give you that clout against the big guys and we're going to group ad- advertise. And I think they've become less focused on that as they sign another 100 McDonald's to the program or another 50 Starbucks. And they become less focused on those little guys. And we're just, we're getting lost in that. And unfortunately, I mean, take the third-party stuff aside, it's the little guys that are taking a beating right now. The large chains and the large group, large groups, sure, their profits are down and they're struggling and it's tough, but they're going to make it to the other side of this. And what we're going to see is, you know, you pile on the fact that you're paying third-party fees and you're behind on rent and you're paying this and you're paying that. It's the little guys that are, you know, are, you know two or three months, maybe they have two or three months of savings, they're not going to come out on the other side of this. So it's, it's going to have an impact on our on our dining culture and our uh, just our food communities in Calgary and Edmonton because you're going to see some of those independents fall by the wayside because they just can't survive this. And um, Unfortunately, you'll see the rise of the chains or the resurgence perhaps of the chains uh, coming back because they've managed to weather the storm better than the little guys. Yeah. Well, and I guess yeah. one way to push back against that is kind of what we're doing right now. So at least people are aware. I mean, if they still prefer these apps, then then so be it. But at least the people maybe didn't realize that, and instead they'll you know they'll contact the, their local restaurant directly. I mean, that's that's one way I guess to counter all of this, isn't it? 
It, it truly is. And I mean, if you've got a favorite neighborhood spot and you really want to support them, I mean, you know, we all have smartphones, but use the, the phone part of the smartphone and pick up the phone and actually call the restaurant and say, hey, can I just pick up from you? Or do you guys have a delivery service? Or go on their website. And and uh, those are great ways to find out. And you know what? Some guys are still using third parties and they're finding a way to make it work. And if that's their preference, that's up to them. But at least you've done your part to try to help. Uh, or as you said, I mean, you mentioned at the start, I mean, in this in this scenario, when you're stuck in your house all the time, sometimes it's just nice to get out of the house and go pick up takeouts and and uh, interact, even if it's at a distance or through a mask with some people for a few minutes. So uh, I would encourage people to keep doing that and support those small local businesses. I mean, we've been really blessed here. We've had a lot of great support, and uh, it's been really helpful to help us get through this. But uh, uh, you know, it's, it's we're in this for the long haul, and the, you know how long that local support's going to last. Who knows, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, much more to chefpaulshufeld.com. Paul, appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks so much. Take care. All right, you as well. Uh, That's uh, Chef Paul Shufelt up in Edmonton of the Workshop Eatery and uh, Woodshed Burgers. And, yeah, some interesting insight on, you know, what what this means in reality to to independent restaurants. Um, So, look, I mean, sure, yeah. I mean, obviously, Skip the Dishes and Uber Eats, they're bringing something to the table. They're, They're bringing some value. People know them. Uh, you know, it's it's something people think about. Now, I'm hungry. It's supper time. I'm going to grab my phone. I'm going to open one of those apps. That's kind of how people think now. So they are bringing something to the table. They're bringing that clout. So it's not unreasonable then that they say, yeah, look, we we expect to get paid for what we're contributing to this equation. We're bringing the customer to you. But that's that's the hit it means for these restaurants. And it can be, in, in a lot of cases, almost a money-losing proposition then uh, to fulfill that order. You hope maybe you're getting some residual long-term benefit, uh, that at least you remain you know, in that customer's mind. They're thinking of you, and when the time comes that it's okay to go out once again and have a meal, that they'll come down to you. But in the meantime, yeah, it's, it's, it's hurting. It is hurting the, a lot of these independent restaurants. We're still a ways away from November, although I suspect that over the last two months there have probably been some, some interesting mustaches uh, grown across the country. Uh, but obviously, look, issues around men's health, and in particular men's mental health, are, are certainly at the forefront, and maybe need to be at the forefront. So I think we realize that, look, th- these are difficult times for, for everybody. Um, an interesting uh, new survey uh, from November, though, uh, looking at how men are dealing with, with this situation. And obviously, you know, the, the needs of men are, are unique, and maybe the, uh, the way men deal with these situations is too. Uh, 40% of Canadian men say no one has asked how they're coping during this pandemic. Only 49% of Canadian men report having sought help to manage life changes. Six out of 10 Canadian men aged 45 and up report feeling less connected to friends. 27% of Canadian men say their mental health has worsened. Results also show that Canadians are more likely to check in on how female friends and family are coping than they are their male friends and family. So some, some issues, I, I think, to focus on in all of this and uh, joining us uh, to do so. Uh, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Dr. John uh, Olaf is a professor at UBC. Uh, founder and lead investigator of UBC's Men's Health Research Program. Uh, Dr. Olaf, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. 
Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the month of November, it being November, you know, it's an, it's an opportunity to focus on a lot of these issues. But yeah, given everything going on right now, I think it's really important to shine a light on this right now. Why, why was it important from your perspective, you know, to, to gather this information and, and shine a light on this? Yeah, it's a unique period in history, as, as you were mentioning, and and we know that men suffer from mental illness and, and they suicide at, at very high rates compared to women. And so some of the things that are going on with COVID-19 are, are probably exacerbating some of the challenges that drive those statistics in ordinary times. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that, that, you know, the some of the stereotypes around this, that, that men are going to put on that stiff upper lip, or it's not going to be as obvious maybe that men are are going through tough times, or they're less likely to reach out to, to somebody, or people are less likely to reach out to them. And I mean, a lot of that, you know, they are stereotypes, but a lot of that is kind of grounded in, in, in reality, or at least how we perceive these things. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's interesting because we, we, we all buy into it. So, you know, if a guy is perceived as self-reliant and looking after his own problems and challenges, then we don't reach out. It also stops him from reaching out. So it's a bit of a co-constructed kind of piece where, where guys don't get the help or don't ask for the help um, because we just make these assumptions that they're going to be okay. Um, but we see guys drive internally looking for solutions to their challenges and um, they don't always have the resources to, to be able to, you know, recover from the things that they they experience, COVID being one of them. Right. So, I mean, it, it seems twofold. First of all, being willing uh, to reach out to someone and then at that point knowing where to turn. And I think in a lot of cases, there's maybe not that willingness or people just, they, they don't know who to reach out to. Yeah, it's true, right? And so... Even even in terms of um, reaching out, but I think I think in, guys are most likely to chat with you when they're given permission or opportunity to talk, and so sometimes asking just a simple open-ended question um, to try and get a sense of what's going on for them, and then following up with a few clarifying questions can get them into the space of, of chatting because we know once we get guys talking they're pretty good at unpacking what's going on for them it's just that kind of that permission to be a bit vulnerable that permission to say what's really going on for them yeah and even just you know the the simple how are you doing how are things right just as, sure. as that's that starting point opening that door and those little clarifying ones about, you know, so what else has been happening? What's the context around that? Um, and I think, you know, just avoiding the, the closed-ended questions because we get lots of yes and no answers from fellas. But if we do mm-hmm. the open-ended ones, you know, we tend to get a bit more detail. And that just helps us not solve their problems, but really help them think about getting unstuck from the problems to think about how they might drive something forward. So we find a lot of guys... You know, they worry about the past and, and that can show up in depressive symptoms and they're anxious about the future, especially at the moment, and that can show up as anxiety. So just trying to unstuck, get unstuck in terms of those problems, can um, you can really help by just asking those opening questions. Yeah, and that's uh, this uh, website that's been set up. So it's conversations.movember.com. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's just kind of that, that starting point and knowing how to initiate those conversations or, you know, what, what you should say if you just want to get a sense of, of how someone's doing. So it's, I, I guess that's, that's the point of this, isn't it? For sure. And, and, and there's a little mnemonic with that, that ask, listen, encourage and check. And I really, I like it. Um, I think it just helps us to think about how we might get conversations with fellas and also, 
as well as how we might reach out, you know, and uh, uh, help other folks, you know. So I think it's I think it's super helpful to to think through and the um, the little um, web based piece with three scenarios I think are, are wonderfully helpful in the COVID context around financial hardship isolation and juggling work and family so i really yeah i think it's a, i think it's a great resource yeah and, and looking at the, what these survey uh, results were showing or just in terms of the impact this whole situation is having on men i mean did any of that surprise you um you know i'm a little uh, maybe not surprise me but but I'm, I'm concerned about you know that this this rise in mental health um, worsening, you know, that, that yeah. 27% increase. Yeah. Um, because, it, you know, transitions to home and transitions to uncertainty with work and transitions around financial hardship, they, we know from history that they, they don't play well for a lot of guys. But also we've got another transition where we're gradually getting back to what's probably a new normal. And I think, you know, there's a lot of anxiety around that for everybody. But guys oftentimes will drive it inwards and and so I'm a bit concerned about the the mental health piece but you know um, people around guys can can really make a difference by reaching out to them um, especially at the moment uh, and, and just you know what do, what do you say to guys who you know have that reluctance to to even want to have those conversations that you know they're bigger issues in the world or there's people maybe who are worse off than me and so I, I shouldn't be feeling sorry for myself or I should just kind of get over whatever it is I happen to be feeling on any given day. You know, how, how, do, how do guys get past that? Yeah, I think that, you know, if we think about the strength and the courage it takes to show some vulnerabilities and to share some vulnerabilities, because we've all got them, then that can open it up as a bit of a strength-based opportunity to say, hey, I've got this struggle. I'm, I'm trying to work through it. You know, what's, what's your best advice? What, you know, how, how do you cope? And even just that can just norm the fact that we all struggle through things and, and just opening it up. It doesn't mean that we necessarily need professional help. It right. might just mean that we just, we just you know, will benefit. One of the things that really troubles blokes is when they get socially isolated. So, so even just the connection, the chatting, can make such a difference in the moment and in the aftermath of the chat. Yeah, that's a big difference. And, and it's important to point that out, that, you know, staying connected and, and just, you know, having conversations with people, um, that there's value in that. I mean, obviously, there are going to be situations where maybe there is a need to, to address something more serious or, or to, to seek medical or professional help for, for, for something. But, you know, just being able to, to maintain connections and talk about how we're feeling, that, 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 that is something of value. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, much more at Movember.com and in particular conversations.movember.com. Dr. Olaf, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Dr. John Olaf. Uh, he's at uh, UBC, uh, professor there, lead investigator of the uh, UBC's Men's Health Research Program. Uh, so his thoughts on, on what these survey results reflect and kind of where this, you know, a tool like this, Movember Conversations, can fit in. And even just, you know, some, some suggestions or guidance on how to, to start a difficult conversation, how to find ways of staying connected to people. So again, 40% of Canadian men say no one has asked them how they're coping during this whole situation. 49% of Canadian men report having sought some help to manage life changes. Six out of 10 Canadian men age 45 plus 
report feeling less connected. 27%. That's a scary number. 27% of Canadian men say their mental health has worsened. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.